And once again, thank you all for being here. As I mentioned earlier, we are jumping back into the Jesus series. We had a little break to celebrate a little thing called Christmas, and so we celebrated the birth of Jesus. And now we're back into this Jesus series, and what we're doing as a church is we are going through the life of Jesus. We're looking at these four biographies that we have about Jesus, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and we are reading these books in a mostly chronological order in order that we might better get to know Jesus, him better. And for some of you, this is the first time you've gone through anything like this, reading about Jesus, reading the Gospels, and for others of us, we've done this before. Regardless, this is a worthwhile, at least in my opinion, and a fruitful experience. Let's go back to the origin. Let's go back to the Gospels and read about Jesus, so we can know him better, so we can serve him better, so we can live according to his ways, and so we can share him, be better equipped to share him with the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. Something I realized this week as we got back into the reading plan is when we get to Matthew 16, and that's a chapter, we would have read that uh, January 1st, those of you doing the plan. Uh, in Matthew 16, Matthew clusters together this group of events and in this chapter, we see so many of the, the building blocks for what it means to be the church, for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And in Matthew 16, we see this bit of a turn, a new phase in the ministry and the leadership of Jesus and what he explains to his disciples. And he's letting them into a next level of, of revelation of who he is and why he's there and what he's there to accomplish. And so things have now Things have now changed for Jesus and his followers. You know, by the time we get to Matthew 16, Jesus has been around for a while. His disciples have been following him for at least two years. They've seen many things. They've had many wonderful experiences together. They've had many challenging experiences together. The disciples have seen great miracles. They've seen people raised from the dead. They've seen the sick healed. They've seen the paralyzed able to walk, the blind given sight. They've seen all these people fed from the loaves and the fishes, but they've also seen Jesus rejected by many people. They've seen Jesus rejected by the religious establishment. They've seen Jesus rejected by the very people that he, he served and performed these miracles for. Maybe you remember back in December, those of you who are with us, that Jesus fed the multitudes, the 5,000, the loaves and fishes, and they come to him the next day wanting to be fed more, and he says, no, that's not why I'm here. And so many fall away from Jesus. And so the disciples have been through a lot with Jesus, and we enter into this new phase. And so if you have a Bible with her, if you have your Bible app, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 16 to see what we can discover in this chapter, this cluster of events that Matthew gives us in this chapter. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Let's pause to remember where we are in the timeline. How many signs has Jesus already performed? All right? People who were blind have their sight restored. The sick were healed. The paralyzed were able to walk. People are raised from the dead. Loaves and fishes multiply. What more do y'all need, right? And yet they say, hey, can you give us a sign? And here's what we've learned up to this point in the Jesus series. For some people, there will never be enough 
There's never going to be enough to prove anything to these people. How many signs can this man perform to prove that he is from God and that God is with him? Well, do one more. We'll do one more. We'll do something bigger. We'll even bigger than that. And Jesus knows this, and he knows their hearts. He knows that no matter what they see, nothing is ever going to be good enough. You know people like that. Nothing's ever good enough. Nothing. Did you ever feel that way? Did you ever walk away from a conversation from something? Nothing's ever good enough. We've all felt that way, but Jesus lived it. Nothing's ever good enough for you people. And so they asked for a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. And so basically what Jesus is saying is here, you know how to interpret all these kind of vague signs you see in nature, right? What is it? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Is that still a thing? Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know about such things, right? But he's saying you guys have all these different ways to try to figure out what's going on, and yet all these very obvious, not vague, but obvious things are happening right before you, and you're rejecting them. An evil, verse 6, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And if we compare the other Gospels together, Jesus explains as Jonah was in that belly of the earth, or I'm sorry, as Jonah was in the belly of that great fish or that whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in that tomb for three days and then emerge. He left and went away. I'm sorry, verse 5, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Jesus and his disciples get into this interaction. They're like, what is he talking about leaven? Maybe your translation says yeast, right? They have this conversation about bread. They have this conversation about yeast. Anybody here bake with yeast? You make dough or bread or anything like that? Yeah, you know what it's like, right? I think I've made pizza dough from scratch at least once in my life. And all you have to do is you take that little bit of yeast and you work it through all the mixture and then it puffs up, right? leavens up. Is that an expression? I don't know. It gets big, right? It expands. All it takes is a little bit. You work it through the mixture, and then it grows. And so the, the disciples are confused by this, and they're wondering, what is he talking about? Yeast her? Why is he talking about this leaven? And then Jesus explains to them, I'm talking about the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for their leaven. Watch out for their yeast, because all it takes is just a little bit of undermining the authority of Scripture to ruin your whole batch of dough. All it takes is a little bit of undermining the authority of who Jesus is. That's all it takes is just to question a little bit or undermine a little bit, and your whole belief system has been corrupted by that little bit of yeast. All it takes is that little bit of leaven to compromise on, well, what exactly is it that Jesus came to accomplish? And you start to question what Jesus accomplished and why he was here on this. All it takes is a little bit of leaven. You dash a little bit of doubt in there, and it can ruin your whole faith system. Do you know the type of thing I'm talking about? I'm going to give you an example, a little dangerous example, just to prove a point here. Or I don't know if I'm going to prove it, but just to try and make a point here, right? You know, there are plenty of people in this day and age, plenty of people who call themselves Christians that look at that story that we get in Genesis, and they read about Adam and Eve, and they read about a talking snake, and they read about an apple, and they read all this stuff, and they're like, wow, this is so tough to believe. Did this really happen? And then somewhere along the way, a little bit of yeast got peppered or sprinkled into the mix. And there's plenty of Bible teachers, and there's plenty of churches, and there's plenty of denominations, and there's plenty of seminaries that will say, well, 
You don't have to take that all literally, right? I mean, you don't have to take that all literally. It's such a tough pill to swallow, so we don't have to take it literally. Well, okay. And so many of us Christians, when we hear that, we think, well, that sounds great. But it's also problematic. <laughs> because what happens when we get to Luke's gospel in the New Testament? Well, Luke gives us a genealogy of Jesus, and he goes all the way back to Adam. And he refers to Adam as a literal human being that existed. Now, what about Christ himself? Christ refers to Adam and Eve as literal people who actually, historic figures who actually existed. And so if we don't believe in Adam and Eve being literal people, and then we get to the Luke and we get to Jesus, it's like, well, well, wait a minute, were they referring to people, well, maybe we don't have to take everything they say literally. And if we're not going to take Adam and Eve literally, and we got this snake and we got it, what about Noah and the flood? I mean, that's such a fantastic, supernatural story. Do we have to take that literally? And what about Moses and all these miracles and all these plagues and setting the Egyptians free? Well, if I haven't taken this literally and I haven't taken that literally, do I need to take this literally? And what about I move forward in the timeline and I get to Jonah and this big old fish that swallows him up? I mean, oh, goodness gracious, should I take that literally? Again, it's problematic. Jesus refers to Jonah as a historic person. And so if we are not taking that story of Jonah literally, and Jesus is, it undermines the authority of what Jesus is saying. Well, maybe we don't have to take what Jesus is saying as literal. And what about Jesus? What, what about what he says about salvation? What about what Jesus says about heaven and hell? Do we need to take any of these things literally? You see where this all goes? <laughs> now, let me, let me pause for a moment and make a side point. What's required for salvation is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of people who have said, I don't trust in myself for salvation, I trust in Jesus, who look back at Adam and Eve and they don't take it literally. Well, I do. I just want to make the point right now, okay? I'm not saying if you take that figuratively, you're going to hell. No. No, 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 no. Don't put those words in my mouth because that's not what's required for salvation. What's required for salvation is to trust in Jesus. Amen? Is that understood? Is that clear? All right. I'm just trying to make a point that all it takes is just that little bit of, that little dash of leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, undermining the authority of Scripture, undermining the identity of Jesus. Do you realize we live in a day and age where there are some people who refer to themselves as Christians that don't believe in a literal resurrection? Say, so, well, it's not that Jesus rose from the dead because that's impossible. I mean, it's more that just like his message continued on. Are you kidding me? What do we believe in then? This is not, uh, I don't, this is real, folks. This is where we are right now in the church in America. I mean, look around us. <laughs> See, church is shrinking down. Why? Because our belief system has become nothing. It's been corrupted by just that little dash of leaven. Watch out. Beware. And, and I'm not trying to vilify those who, who sprinkle those dashes of leaven in because sometimes it's just, well, we're trying to make a tough pill easier to swallow, right? We're trying to take these stories and make them more palatable. Well, don't, well, just let them be unpalatable. <laughs> let it be a tough pill to swallow, right? Let it remain that way. They continue on here. So they have this conversation. Then we get to verse 13. Now, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, again, we see this term Jesus uses to describe himself. It's a title he gives himself, the Son of Man. It's a reference to something Daniel saw, one of the prophets. It's a long story, but essentially Daniel has this vision, and he sees a God, and he's expecting to see God in all of his glory. And God is presented as 
a man, and he's surprised by this. And so Jesus is that son of man that Daniel saw once upon a time in that revelation, in that vision. And so he says, who do people say that the son of man is? In other words, who do people think that I am? What are people saying about me? What are the rumors? What have you guys heard? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. You're like, what are you talking about? John the Baptist is a whole other guy. Why would people confuse Jesus with John the Baptist? Well, at this point in time, John the Baptist was dead, and some people thought, well, Jesus is John the Baptist, raised back to life. Some people didn't know that John the Baptist was dead and just thought, well, these are the same guy because they didn't have news, they didn't have pictures, they didn't have social media, and so there was confusion about the identity of who Jesus is. Some people think you're John the Baptist. <clears throat> and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, it was understood and it was believed by the Jews at that time that before the Messiah would come, first the prophet Elijah would return. And so essentially what they're saying is, well, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're like the opening act to the Messiah, that you're here to lead the way for the Messiah. It's like, okay. And he said to him, but who do you say I am? All right, that's, that's what's going on about me. You know, people think that I'm just some kind of prophet or whatever it is, but what about you guys? This is an important question for us to consider as well. You know, as I said, it just takes a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven to undermine the authority of Scripture or to undermine the identity of who Jesus is. Plenty of people regard Jesus as a good man, a good teacher, even a prophet. But Jesus is more than a good man, more than a man of God, more than a prophet. Jesus is the son of the living God. That's what he claims about himself. And he is equal with Father God. That's different. Don't let your belief system be compromised by that leaven that says, well, he's just a good man. And we can all learn a thing or two from Jesus. Come on, give me a break. He's the son of God. So he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this is a big deal. Because, well, for many reasons, but for one reason, because in, in their Jewish thinking, they were expecting a Messiah, but that concept of Messiah, that concept of the Christ, of the Savior, the hero, was not necessarily tied to this man being God's son. There wasn't a whole lot in their prophecies about the Messiah being God's son, just some vague ideas. You know, Isaiah says, what is it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so there's some vague references to a son being born, but Peter has this, Simon Peter has this revelation. You are not only the Messiah, not only the Christ that we've been expecting, not only this hero, this redeemer that's been prophesied, you are also God's son. That's a big claim. Remember, we're a couple years into this ministry, a couple years of, of Jesus and his disciples being together, of them seeing what Jesus was, was capable of, and now, a couple years in, finally, somebody's willing to speak up and say, I think you're more than just a prophet. I think you're more than just a good man. I believe you're the Christ, and not only that, I believe that you are God's son. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Sina Barjona, which means son of John. Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so he's saying to Simon, who we will rename Peter here, he's saying to him, you didn't just figure this out on your own. God has revealed this to you. And I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, or rocky, or rock man. Rock man's fun. I say that you are rock man, 
and upon this rock I will build my church. A few things about this. If you go back to the original Greek, there are two different words used for rock there. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to call you rock, and that's the masculine form of the word. And upon this rock, feminine form of the word, I will build my church. And essentially the understanding is that Jesus is saying to Simon, you are correct. You have correctly identified that I'm the son of God. I am renaming you Peter, which means rock. And upon this revelation that Jesus is the son of God, I will build my church. Not just upon one man's shoulders, not just upon Peter's back. No, but upon this revelation, I will build my church. Church very simply means assembly, group, following, perhaps more specifically, movement. And so the time of Jesus and disciples, this is before church has begun. The church does not begin until post resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he's telling them that this movement I'm going to start, it's going to be founded on this belief, this understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the foundation for the church. You can't compromise that foundation. That's the rock, this understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. I say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You know, earlier, well, actually last week, Tricia sent me an article and reminded me of the significance of where this conversation takes place. You know, so often we're reading the Gospels and we're given a location. It's like, well, what does the location mean to me? I mean, I just kind of picture a sandy area. Do you do that when you read the Gospels? Some kind of deserty place, right? Well, they're at Caesarea Philippi. And during the Greek Empire, when the Greeks were in charge, this was a place where they worshipped their false god, Pan. And they did detestable acts to worship their false god. And then the Romans took over, and they still committed these detestable acts, worshiping this false god. And if you want to know what kind of acts I'm referring to, look it up on your own, because I'm too embarrassed to say it up here in front of you all. But it's nasty. These vile and vulgar, sexually immoral acts with animals. Gross, gross stuff. And there were these caves there that they believed were the entrance into Hades or hell or this underworld. And so they're at this location, and Jesus says that this movement, this church, the powers of evil, the powers of hell, or these influence of evil will not overcome this movement we call church. It will not overcome it. I give you the keys, what verse am I in? Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And you see this, you see that that Jesus gives Peter these keys. In Acts chapter 2, are you with me? We got a lot, we're covering a lot here today. In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter use these keys. Acts chapter 2 is post-crucifixion, it's post-resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven. And then Peter stands up, and he speaks to his fellow people. He speaks to the Israelites, to the Jews, and said, hey, guess what? The Messiah showed up, and you killed him. And this is what was foretold, and this all had to happen. And so he takes the keys of the kingdom, and he explains the gospel to his own people. And his own people are pierced to the heart, and they receive Jesus as their Savior, and he becomes, they become the very first church. And so that God, the, the key is the gospel, and, Jesus, and Peter opens up that, uses that key to open up the church to his own people. And then later in the book of Acts, we see Peter giving that same gospel message to the Gentiles. And so he takes the key, and he opens it up whoop, to the Gentiles. Are you still with me? So this keys to the kingdom were given to Peter. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. 
Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is one of these verses, one of these sentences that people have, have stumbled over for years and wondering, what does this mean? Does that mean Peter has some kind of crazy authority where he gets to decide what's bound and what's loosed, whatever that means? Well, this idea of binding and loosening was, was all about permitting or forbidding, right? You either permit something or you forbid something. But Peter didn't have the power to decide, okay, well, this is permissible and this is not permissible. No, it says whatever you say, Peter, was already decided in heaven, right? And so if you have the New American Standard Version or a good translation, that's the idea. It's like whatever you say, Peter, was already determined in heaven. You're not going to make these things up on your own of what's permissible and what's forbidden. No, that was predetermined in heaven, and then you speak the words to the people. So we go from this point, and this is a big deal, all right, if you're Simon. This is a big deal. You've spoken up, right? You were the only disciple that spoke up. He said, I know who you are. I'll take this one, Jesus. I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Redeemer we've been waiting for. You're God's son. And then Jesus looks at you and says, I'm going to give you a new name. Right you are. I'm going to give you a new name. You're the rock, man. You're the rock, right? And do you smell what the rock is cooking, right? Sorry, I couldn't help myself. But you are the rock, okay? What? Wow. Hey, look at that, guys. I'm the rock, right? Just that sense of, wow, what a, what a special thing. That, I mean, to have Jesus change your name? Who am I? What do we sing about this morning? We sang these songs that speak about our identity. We are who Jesus says we are. I am who Jesus says I am. And in this moment, Simon is now the rock. He's Christ's rock. Here we are, chapter 16. I'm telling you, there's a, there's a new phase happening here in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter, the rock, took him aside. Did you ever take somebody aside? Parents, you've taken your kids aside at some point. Let me talk to you over here for a minute, right? Let me fix this. And so Peter, perhaps emboldened by his new name and his new status among the disciples, he takes Jesus aside and says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Listen, Jesus, you've talked about what's going to happen. You're going to be killed by these people. No, 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 no. You can count on your rock, man. Count on me. We will never let this happen to you. And Jesus says, oh, man, thanks a lot. I appreciate the support. No. <laughs> he turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> One moment you're the rock. Next minute you're Satan. What a wild ride, all right? Get behind me, Satan. And that word means enemy, adversary. Get behind me, enemy. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are trying to get in my way is what a stumbling block is, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. Peter, you're not thinking about why I'm here. You're not thinking about what I'm here to accomplish. I have to go die. I am the Lamb of God that takes this away the sins of the world. I have to be killed. My blood has to be shed. You're getting in my way because you're not thinking about God's will. You're not thinking about God's mission. You're not thinking about who I am and what I'm here to accomplish. You're just thinking about us. You're just thinking about yourself, Peter. You're just thinking about our relationship. You're not thinking about the things of God. Where's that leaven? That little bit of leaven, undermining who Jesus is, undermining the work that he is here to accomplish. Watch out for that leaven. 
Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial. If anyone wishes to pursue me, to follow me, to be one of my disciples, here's what's required. You must deny yourself, whatever it is that you want for your life, whatever it is that you feel like pursuing, whatever the comforts are that you want to accumulate, you must deny yourself. Is that what you were taught about Christianity, those of you who grew up in a church life? Hey, it's about denying yourself. You must deny yourself, and then Jesus takes it to the next level. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In our culture, the cross is sometimes used as a symbol. What does the cross symbolize? Burden. You've heard it said, well, we all have our cross to carry. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said it. We all have our cross to carry. In Jesus' day, a cross was not a symbol. It was an instrument of death, right? of execution, of painful, humiliating execution. If you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. There's going to be something that you want to pursue in this life. You're going to have your own interests, your own sets of priorities that you're going to have to put aside. You're going to have to kill those off to come follow me. This idea of dying to self. Earlier in the ministry of Jesus, we heard him have this conversation with Nicodemus where he talks about being born again. Guess what happens before you can be born again? You have to die. And then you can be born again. This concept is all throughout the New Testament. A new self, a new creation, a new you is born, but first you have to let go of the old. Those of you who have been baptized, you went through this water ritual. What does that symbolize? Dying to the old self, washing that old self away, becoming the new creation. What's nice when we do this readings uh, together, if you're doing the, the Jesus series reading plan, you read this account from Matthew, and you've also read it from Mark, you've also read it from Luke. In Luke's gospel, he explains that this process happens on a daily basis. You must daily deny yourself, daily pick up your cross and follow Jesus. There's this myth in Christianity that you just make some kind of one-time commitment to Jesus and then you're locked in for the rest of your life. No, it's a daily struggle, a daily commitment, a daily sacrifice to give up what I want and instead pursue what God wants. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, <clears throat> but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever tries to hold on to their own plan for their life, and we all have all grown up, I think we've all grown up in the United States of America here, we're all given these ideas about we just need to pursue comforts, we need to get enough money to have enough comforts around us, to have this kind of bubble around our lives, and be autonomous, and be able to take care of ourselves. If we could just do that, then we win at life. Jesus, if you pursue all those comforts and try to insulate your life, and you try, well, guess what? You're going to end up dying anyway. You'll end up losing your life anyway. But if you give up all of that, if you give up the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of what we call security, and if you instead follow the example of Jesus and follow the priority of Jesus, you will gain your life. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can win at life and still lose. You can win at life. I've bought all the stuff. I've acquired all the stuff. I've reached the status. That's fantastic. I've pursued all these earthly things. You're still going to die. Did you forfeit your soul in the process? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his 
deeds. Do not get this confused. Jesus is not saying you are saved by your deeds. He is not. But peppered throughout the New Testament, we do receive this information that there are rewards in heaven. Whatever you give up in sacrifice here in this life, which is temporary and quite short, whatever you give up here, you receive a reward in heaven. How about that? And what has Jesus already told us in the Sermon on the Mount? We should pursue those rewards in heaven, the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Another verse that confuses us because we know that all of these men died before Jesus returned a second time. However, some, three of the men gathered there, did see Jesus in his glorified state. The very next chapter, Matthew 17, Jesus transforms. They see this transfiguration process. They see Jesus appear in all of his heavenly glory. So perhaps that's what Jesus is referencing there. And so we read Matthew 16 and we walk away. What? What? I don't know if you noticed, but today's message is called Prelude to the Church. Because that's what Jesus has given us here in Matthew 16. These foundational elements, these building blocks. The story's not complete yet, but now that we've entered this new phase in the ministry of Jesus, he's presenting these foundational building blocks to us. And what has he told us? What has he showed us? First off, he said, watch out, because there will be those who attempt to undermine the authority of Scripture, undermine the identity of Jesus, undermine the mission of Jesus. Watch out for that. And we, who make up the church nowadays, need to hold on to that warning. Watch out. And what does Jesus reveal to us in this chapter? Well, the truth of his identity. He is the Son of God, more than just a prophet, more than just a good man, more than just a very clever teacher. No, he is the Son of God, and that is a foundational element to what it means to be the church. And what has he shown us, Christians? Well, if we're going to go after Jesus, if we're going to pursue him, there's going to be a sacrifice required. There's going to have to be a transformation where we give up things that are not of God to pursue things that are of God. There's something I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed it too, where people try to make things compatible that are not compatible. And sometimes we try to take Jesus along with us. You know, whatever I want to pursue in life, I'm just going to take Jesus with me. That's not how it works. <laughs> when we become followers of Jesus, we invite him to ruin our plans. <laughs> to get rid of all those plans. And coming fresh off the heels of the Christmas season, there's perhaps no greater example than Mary and Joseph themselves. They had to give up all the plans they had for their lives in order to now do this new and difficult but wonderful thing. And so it's up to us. <laughs> now it's, the message has made it all the way to us. It's up to us to decide, will we go after Jesus? Will we pursue Jesus? And what I can say to you is I believe it to be true. Whatever we give up in this life, whatever we sacrifice in this life, it is worth it. Specifically, Jesus is worth it. There's nothing we can sacrifice. There's nothing we can give up. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing compared to how much more wonderful it will be when we enter into that kingdom of heaven and the rewards that, will, that await us there. And so I say, let's go after Jesus. Let's pursue him. And as Luke clarifies, it's not a one-and-done situation. It is a daily decision to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Let's pray on that.
Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world to do this work that we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, we thank you for dying on that cross for our sins. And we acknowledge that whatever we give up here on earth, that it is worth it, that you are worth it, Jesus. And so, Father, as we go through each day, show us how you want us to live. As we have different interactions with different people, show us how you would have us love them and serve them and care for them. Father God, give us the courage to take up our crosses and follow you, Jesus. Father God, we thank you for giving us this environment and this opportunity to worship you. And now that our worship service is over, we pray that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Father God, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve one another and the way that we love and serve you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.